Yes, it is. I still can't believe you're still using that old picture of you. There's even a yeah. picture of me in Skype. Yeah, there is. I, it's the old one. Uh oh. It's not. It's not the cool hip new Joel Spolsky. It's the old, like mid '90s Joel Spolsky. Personalize, maybe I, personalize. Change your picture. Change your picture. Yeah, that's right. That's a well. It's not mid '90s. It's that's a 2000 picture from 2000. Sorry, I meant late '90s. I, I actually rethought that even as I said it. That was my guess as well. Are you one of those people that knows when all the pictures of me were taken? Okay. No. No, I just think that it's amusing because uh, seeing people in context of the time, you know, there's all these, even on like simple pictures with just basic clothing and hairstyles, there's always something that ties it to a particular era. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's just weird how we can identify that, you know? Okay, here we go. Jink. Oh, that's so cute. Okay. Now, do you think it's going to change like for you on the fly the minute I change my picture? It did. What the? I can't. See what that is. That you is like a, ch- a tiny child. <laughs> yeah. Okay. It really did. It just changed small. on the fly. Yeah. Huh. People take their pictures very seriously. Oh man. Now you've got me like all obsessing. All right, I got to find the perfect picture. I got to trim it perfectly. You don't even have a picture of yourself. Come on. <clears throat> got ogre from Revenge of the Nerd. That's the best possible picture. Oh, this is actually a good one. But I'm gonna have to now. I'm gonna have to crop it and scale it. All right, let's uh, let's get on with the uh, purpose of this call. Okay. Are we are we recording right now? I believe so. Yes. Okay. <laughs> I think we should do. Let's do. Let's do introductions. People complain that they couldn't recognize the voices, like who's who. Okay. So, I'm Joel. Yeah, and I'm I'm Jeff. There we go. So, yeah, there we go. It, it, we don't really need introductions because unlike a radio show where people have every right to not know what it is that they've tuned into, everybody who's listening to this has actually gone out and downloaded our show specifically. Right. And they can look at their iPod and it will tell them, it's the Stack Overflow podcast with your hosts, Jeff and Joel. Right. Yes. Well, I thought that was a valid uh, concern, so I wanted to make sure we at least associate the names with the voices so people know who is who. Um, so this week is an exciting week because the other programmer that I'm working with, Jared, uh-huh. is yeah. actually coming to California for the first time. He'll be staying here. Oh. And Yeah, that's going to be fun. So that's his first trip to California. And it's going to be like a sleepover kind of situation. Yeah, it is. Well, we have an extra room, uh, so there, there's, it's appropriate. Mm-hmm. It won't be a problem. Won't be like one of those bad sitcoms where you know hijinks ensue. Hopefully, we'll see. You know, people accidentally going to the wrong bathroom in the middle of the night in their pajamas and going into the wrong room. Exactly. That's what always happens exactly. in the sitcoms. So one, uh, we have a couple fun geek things planned. Like one is we're going to go to the Computer History Museum, which is a, a lo- one of my favorite places. It's really, really great because one thing I love about California. And particularly being in the Bay Area, and we're only an hour from Silicon Valley, is this really is like geek mecca. I mean, if you think about the the entirety of computer history, so much of it literally originated in Silicon Valley or you know the San Francisco Bay Area. But uh, there's so nothing like, to see in any of those places. Well, there is at the Computer History Museum. Yeah, they have this visual visual. Have you been? No. They have this visual storage area, which has literally every computer, almost, like you can possibly imagine, from, like, the oldest mainframes, like ENIAC and, like, things like that, up until, like, the Commodore 64 and all the, you know, the home systems that were out. Yeah. So it's, like, what I call geek pornography. It's great. It's kind of weird. Let's think about what this would be like if it were a different industry than the industry we happen to be in. Um, Breakfast cereal. Do you think that if you go to um, that place in Michigan – there's like a bre- breakfast cereal museum, and people go there and they're like, they have like literally, they have the original box of Special K. They got the Wheaties with <laughs> with Reggie on it. They have. But if you're into cereal, wouldn't that be fun? Wouldn't that be totally appropriate and cool? I it mean, would be. It would be. But think about what that seems like to everybody else who's not into cereal. So that's but, what. But I don't care. Computer museum. I don't. I don't care what those people think. You understand that, right? <laughs> These other industries. Do you think is it just that computer geeks care more about their own industry? Like, are more interested about well, our industry? Well, you know, there's an association between Aspergers and and IT. 
right? Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. there's a certain level of commitment that it takes to do this stuff. Like, you have to be pretty intense about it to even be into it. I mean, you don't see a lot of people just casually programming. I mean, you do now more, by far, now more than you used to. Yeah. But certainly, if you talk about the true classic programmer, I mean, you're devoted to it, right? It's like all you think about. Oh, you have to it's be. It's very typical. Yeah, it's very typical for that to be true versus like breakfast cereal. So that doesn't happen. Kind of- well, I mean, there's other industries, like clearly the fashion industry is like that. Yes. Where the people are just upset they would go to a fashion museum. I mean, there are you know, they, they have they have that in regular museums. They have a they often have a fashion exhibit. Do you watch uh, Project One Runway, Joel? Um, no. Okay, my my wife watches it, but for reality TV, it's pretty good because they're actually creating things. You know, what, it's not just. What are some other industries? Farming, I guess. There's always like farm implement museums. That's a pretty common kind of museum. Well, sure. I, I think you can follow the, the thread of obsession. I think in in any any profession, as far down as you want to go. Um, but I think computers are unique too because they've had such a profound impact on society. Don't you think? I mean, say like the telephone and you know television. I think people in every industry tell that tell themselves that about their industry. Insurance. Do you think there's an insurance museum in Hartford? I'm not saying Hartford. it's the most important thing in the world. <laughs> it's not going to solve like you know world hunger or anything like that. But in terms of insurance mapping. Sort of well, yeah, but no. in terms, in, in terms I mean, of mapping, just fundamental communication, right? Computers are a big piece of that. So. The Museum of Accountancy. Museum of Chartered Accountants. But some of the cool stuff, like, let me give you an example. The last time I was there, I got to see Space War running on the only known functioning PDP-1 in the world. So you're talking about, like, basically the first computer video game, literally, wow. on a vector display. And I actually got to play it. It was really, really, I mean, unbelievably cool, so... So that, that, that was basically an oscilloscope, right? The vector display. Yes. That's right. It was basically an oscilloscope, like essentially customized. It was some, some accessory for the PDP-1 that they had like painstakingly restored. And it was like basically a typewriter printer uh-huh. for the PDP-1. It's amazing stuff. And they have some of the original guys there. I'm talking old guys, you know, that, that were actually there, like real computer scientists, like hardcore guys that were in the Valley at that time. Um, that's like some of the only places in the world you can really see that. So it's cool. I'm, I'm, I'm very excited. And, of course, we're also going to work on the code together. We're going we're to set aside one day to just do basically pair programming. Yeah. So or I should probably maybe talk a little bit about rent some time on the PDP-1. <laughs> on the oscilloscope. Yeah. So j- just in terms of some of the technology stack we're using, I know I talked about we're using ASP.NET, MVC, which both Jared and I have kind of had to learn. Now, yep. the neat thing about MVC is that it maps more directly to the HTTP model. And, Joel, you've worked with ASP.NET before, so you know, I think originally when they set out, they tried to hide or abstract away a lot of the, the HTTP stack from the user and have sort of this this model that, that's very much like Windows Forms, you, you see, where you have a, a form yeah. designer and you have events that bubble up, and you can just sort of pretend it's not HTML and pretend you're not in a web browser. Well, that's kind of part of the, brilliant of the brilliance of it. Well, I, I had mixed feelings about it. Like, in reading about it, I was like, oh, that totally makes sense, because particularly in coming from the ASP world, the classic ASP world, you know, you realize there's a lot of problems with the old model. So you look forward to the new model in the sense that, okay, this is going to fix... It saves, you a lot of, it saves you a lot of work. It brings you up to a higher level of abstraction, actually. But it does have its issues. It, it's, it's very, very leaky. I mean, yeah, abstractions exactly. are, you know, they're always going to be somewhat leaky. This one's like, I would consider it like a sieve, right? right. It's super leaky. Um, and MVC kind of does away with that because everything is is predicated on the the URL um, being the unit of of interacting with the program, mm-hmm. um, which makes total sense. And you know you, you move away from putting a lot of logic in the actual ASPX forms and you put them more into classes. So it kind of nudges you into sort of a cleaner, simpler way of working that that maps more closely to. The HTTP model, which which is kind of nice, you can sort of see why people started doing this. Well, my um, ASP.NET programs always wind up being uh, a gigantic switch statement that switches on the verb that's in the URL somewhere. Yeah, and this this ASP.NET MVC and MVC in general takes that and looks at it and says, okay, that's the central thing we're doing, so let's make that the heart of the program yeah. and abstracts it into. Okay, so. Own. You always have that. And then and then I have a big old page that has about a bazillion user controls on it. And then I make one user control for every kind of interaction I might want to display. And then this big old switch statement looks at the URL and decides which of those controls to light up by making them visible. So I've got this whole bunch of user controls that are all invisible. 
and I only make one visible at a time based on like what page the app is supposed to be showing or what piece of functionality it's supposed to be showing. It was interesting to me back in 2005, I was reading about some influential ASP.NET programmers who had early on decided that the current what's called the page lifecycle and the page model really just wasn't working for them. And they had kind of abandoned it. And I thought this was really interesting that you would take this fundamental thing that they had. And Microsoft has a lot of smart people working there, right? I mean, it's a pretty good model. Um, but it was really interesting to me that... ASP.NET 1.0, I, I, I beg to differ. I don't think that was a pretty nice model. I think that was substantially lacking in telling you anything about how you should structure an application that has multiple pages and how they should all be set up. And it was yeah, sort of plus- the same way that it was on an individual form in VB. Like in VB, you always had this problem that, uh, and I'm talking the old school VB, Visual Basic 6.0 or 2.0 or whatever. Um, inevitably, you would wind up doing something where you had a particular dialog box or form that had very different states that did very different things. And so you'd have about 100 controls all superimposed all on top of each other. And at runtime, most of them would be invisible. And so you'd have this code that, turns on and turns off various controls. But on the form, they'd all be completely overlapping, and so you'd completely lose any ability to edit visually what what you see. Right, it's so you can see why replicating yeah. that in, in, in the web world wasn't exactly considered a big step forward. Right? It, well, yeah, and it didn't... It, 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 it had sort of the same problem of, like, they never really told you what to do. Like, should you have multiple ASPX pages at the top level? I mean, let's say that you've got a list view and a detail view. Should those be two ASPX pages? And if so, how do they communicate with one another? Or what I wind up doing is I make them two user controls, and at any given time, only one of them is visible. So now I can edit them individually, and I can you know, isolate all the code, but they all live at default.aspx at the top level. There's also some of this embracing of the concept of convention over configuration, which is something in the Ruby on Rails world that they right. sort of the part of their their ethos. Yes. Yeah. Uh, rather than having a lot of configuration, just have conventions that everybody's expected to follow. And let me give you an example. So in ASP.NET MVC, yeah. controllers have to end in the word, word controller. And if you actually go into the source code for the MVC code, it's actually testing explicitly for that string. Mm-hmm. I mean, it might be localized or I don't know, but um, so yeah, it's kind of like a literal. Not. So they you just you just have to have that string in there. Yeah. Well, that always saves you from. I mean, even in ASP.NET, you you inevitably spend a lot of time mapping names of things onto other things that are identical. That makes sense. Um, I think I think too because the web is kind of a, a domain specific model. You can look at Ruby on Rails and, and ASP.NET MVC and see where people said, okay, this is kind of how we ex- we expect web apps to work after we've we've built web apps for how many years now, right? Since basically 98, 99 for most people. And there's an understanding of this is how most of them work. So we're going to have sort of a, a standard template that lets you build 90% of the sites that, would, that are out there. Um, so it, it starts to kind of make sense and it's sort of come into its own. I think MVC is a good example of that. Yeah. Uh, Another... T- yeah. Tech, well, before we go too much further, yeah. another I just want to talk about some of the other technology bits. So we're using jQuery, which is a standard uh, one of those one of those jo- ubiquitous JavaScript libraries. Yep, those are fun. Uh, yep. So jQuery is the one Jared liked the most, and I didn't really have a preference, so that's what we're using. Um, also for error handling, I had a, a couple posts on error handling on my blog. Um, and when I say error handling, I mean like global exception handling. I'm, I've always been a big believer in having sort of airbags in your application <clears> almost from day one. And there's this really cool project called, it's got a horrible name. It's Elma, E-L-M-A-H. It's like error logging modules and handlers. It's a typical horrible programmer name. Mm-hmm. But it's neat because it basically gives you an in-memory or on-disk or in-database representation of all your errors sort of automatically. So when something happens, you can get email notified and you know, it's kept track of and things like that. Oh. Which, and I was actually curious, what do you guys do at Fog Creek for stuff like that? I mean, do you have your unhandled exceptions somehow feed into fog bugs? Yep. Is that something that... That's what we should do, yeah. Of course. Of course! <laughs> what else? <laughs> but do you, in fact, do that? Does it actually yeah. work that way? Okay. Yeah, how else cool. do we fix our bugs? Okay, cool. So if something, like, say I'm using fog bugs and something terrible happens. You are actually yeah, I, using fog bugs on, on yes. occasion. Yes, well, I am. That's true. I haven't had it crash on me is kind of why I was saying it that way. Yeah, that's because we, we do this. If it, if it did crash on you, uh, you'd see a page. Uh, um, like, whoops. Well, yeah, I mean, it just looks like an error page, but it says, we would like 
to submit this information to Fog Creek, please click here to see what the information is. I think you know, like we we do ask permission before uh, uploading what could potentially be um, um, sensitive information, and that's that's okay because we only need to hear if there's a crash in there. I only really need to hear about it from you know four percent of my customers. The other ninety six percent don't want to send it to me. Doesn't matter because I still heard about it. Right. Uh, and um, yeah, and then there's a button and it submits it and it goes into Fogbugs. It's, there's a simple Fogbugs is a simple HTTP interface that you can use to upload bugs. And um, if you you the, the the only the interesting thing is that um, it's it's no big deal in uh, well actually it is a big deal. You 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 want to if the same crash happens twice you don't want two bugs. You want them to be merged into one yes. bug. And that, so, that is annoying. So you have to come up with a scheme. And the ideal scheme is just to say file name in the line where the crash occurred and use that as a unique identifier and just tell Fogbugs, I would like to uniquely identify this crash as file.c line 26. And uh, then any further crashes that occur, excuse me, that occur on that same line of code would be appended to that bug report instead of opening a new bug. So um, one thing I've read about was you could you could take a hash value of the uh, stack trace, but I'm wondering if that would be overkill. Yeah. Uh, all you need to do now. Sometimes you get this problem, which is that, uh, and you have to you have to put you have you kind of have to put it out there and see what crashes you get. Sometimes you get this problem that there's some other crash handling code in the world, and so the actual crash is thrown from some crash handling code somewhere, or mm-hmm. you get a, an awful lot of crashes that come from inside some string library function or something like that. You're like, well, it depends who's calling the string library function. There's maybe different cases. Uh, and then you may actually care a little bit about the call stack. But in my years of experience programming, um, just knowing the file and the line number where the actual exception occurred uh, m- finds, you know, pretty much isolates, you know, almost all of those things. You don't necessarily even need a call stack. If you have a call stack, it's, it's useful. And remember, I'm not talking about, like, what information do you need to repro the crash and fix it. I'm just talking about how do you decide whether two crashes are really the same bug or a different bug for the purpose right. of letting fog bugs decide whether to, uh, to overlay them or not uh, on each other, because um, otherwise it's just irritating. I always felt this this was hugely powerful in it. And one of my previous jobs, I was sort of spearheading the effort to add this, because I felt like, A, if, if you don't know when you're crashing... You're, you're really failing the users like on a really fundamental level like it's not their job to let you know about problems in your software so that's a problem just mm-hmm. professionally to me yeah it's a question of sort of almost like ethics at that point well it but depends on the that, kind of users once, but yeah yeah <laughs> once you actually know what the exceptions are you can really prioritize and say okay look we have this problem that happens a lot so even if this is a really painful problem to fix if we can fix this we can you know 50% of our support calls just go away mm. i mean having that kind of data and power on your project is is unbelievable and i it always surprised me that people would would not understand that or or not somehow get that in place on their project so yeah and in fact for a lot of kinds of applications you know like if you write a windows application today um, you can just let them let microsoft catch it for you and then there's something yeah. you can enroll in, and you can get the data on their database up at the Microsoft database of, of what, what crash occurred. And the other step, which you, you may have left out, which is that once a crash has happened, uh, if, that, if, if in Fogbugs you have indicated that it's been fixed in a later version of the software, then you can tell the user, oh, just upgrade to this later version, and you won't have that crash anymore. Oh, nice. That's a, that's a cool feature. And uh, that'll also eliminate the, the, that whole range of... Um, tech support calls. Yeah, uh, I, mean, I, I I like talking about this topic because I think it's like really fundamental and important. And for some reason, I, yeah. I think a lot of teams just miss out on this. I don't know why. Well, um, life is too boring when when everything works perfectly and nobody ever sees any crashes. <laughs> I like to work under the assumption that I'm going to screw up, right? And then that's the first thing I want to deal is maybe it's have, like have people. Maybe it's like people that are afraid to go to the doctor because they don't know what they're going to be diagnosed with. So they just don't go. It, it is can be painful to deal with this kind of stuff, right? So maybe it's a it's a form of avoiding reality. Mm. So one slightly related topic. So last week, um, I know we keep saying we only have six listeners. We have to stop saying that. Because yeah, because there are a lot of emails. Yeah, I got. Uh, <laughs> well, we got six emails. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we did. We got about fifty emails or something this week. 
Yes, a lot of emails. So thank you very much for all the emails. And I have, I just want to let people know, I have 58 private beta signups so far. So if you still want to do oh. participate in the private beta, How just shoot they, me an email. They email you. Yeah, they can email me. It's fine. It's very easy. I just add them to the list. It's Notepad Technology TM. So it's very easy. Note, note. What would be the uh, what would be the email address that they would use if they wanted to get on the beta? Well, they can just email me directly. So. At. I'm assuming. Well, I'm assuming if they're smart enough to get into the beta, they can figure out what my email address is. This is. Oh, like I see. So that's like a little IQ test. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> what you should do is uh, where was I reading about this today? You should send them each an email saying, "Hey, I'll give you fifty dollars to get off the beta test." Oh, right. right that Zappos thing. That's what yeah. you're referring to, yes. isn't it? Where yeah. Zappos, after tra- they have a four-week training period. At the end of that period, if you, they'll offer you $1,000 to not work at Zappos. To not work for them. <laughs> which is very cool. It's kind of like in the airline industry. Oh, God, I think it was Julian Hirsch actually came up with the idea of paying people not to fly. Like mm-hmm. basically, you know, say the flight's overbooked or whatever. This was a radical idea back in the day. Um, and still pretty radical, right? I mean, to pay someone not to work somewhere after four weeks of time investment in them. Is That's cool. radical. Paying people not to fly is just a matter of like, um, you know, I can sell somebody a last-minute ticket for $1,000 and then bribe somebody who's already on the plane $400 to get off the plane, and I made a $600 profit. Well, they, they're they actually overbooked, though, at that point, right? I mean, they sold too many because a certain percentage yeah. of people drop out. So, Well, the real reason is that they want to keep selling tickets at a very, very high price. After the the plane is allegedly full, it's not because people are going to drop out. Well, but necessarily, is, I mean, there, I, there are going to be a couple of people that drop out, but they, but 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 more important is that they can always pay somebody to get off the plane and make a higher profit by taking that person, putting them on another plane that has extra seats. Anyway, and was going to fly there anyway. It seems awfully. Uh, it's just it's just making a profit. Yeah. Well, okay. I, I, it's probably both of those things, but it's still it's, it's a pretty cool technique. And I, I, somebody linked that actually on Twitter, your favorite service. That's how I found out about that article. I really like Twitter. You know what I like? Twittering. <laughs> I know. So if people don't know, I've been actually – I sent uh, Joel a few emails from – hey, your buddy Rands, Michael Lopp, actually is a big Twitter fan as well. I am, I, I, I am a convert to the church of Twitter. I've been posting all my <laughs> news. I've got – Thousands of followers on Twitter, holographic, and um, and I've been following all the all my favorite celebrities: um, Leo Laporte, Kevin Rose, Swoon. Um, <laughs> so I know where they are, and when they're sending messages to Scobble, Scobble. Oh, oh yes, Scobble. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Scrabble. I apologize. I don't mean to be a fanboy. It's just I don't know why, but Twitter. I find very, very useful. It's really strange. And it's well, kind of like... It's, you, no, no, no. It's fine for you to find it useful. What's weird is, why are you so evangelical about it? And well, that why leads do I us have back a, to wait, 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 wait. cognitive dissonance, wait, wait, which wait, wait, wait. is you have no other explanation for why you're doing something. You just cannot figure out why you're wasting time doing this miserable thing that makes you unhappy. <laughs> it must be because it's great. But it actually makes me happy. Like I feel like I have all this community. I meet all these new people. And, you know, as a programmer, you know, I work from home now, right? I don't, like, get out into the world too much. Maybe that's the problem. Maybe I'm, like, an introvert and I'm sick of people and I want them to go away. (laughs) I'm always trying to figure out how to to hear less news of other people and spend less time talking to people. Yes. Yes, but uh, getting back to the original point you brought up, it's like, why would you be so evangelical? You realize I have a blog, right? The whole evangelical nature of blogging is is a really key factor in whether someone likes it or not. Because there's a lot of people at my previous job, I you know, since you know, I would always tell people, hey, the blogging has worked really well for me. You know, it's like baseball has been very, very good to me, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, like the classic SNL skit. Yeah, a lot of people were just like, you know, that's that's not my personality. I'm not the kind of guy or gal. That's going to go out there and tell people this is what you should do. This is awesome. That's just not me. Yeah. And if that's not part of your DNA, it is difficult. Um, but it also makes me, you know, inclined to talk about things like everybody else should do them. Right. <laughs> I like this thing so much. You should do it too. And I was like, I grab people and shake them until they do it. Right. So, <laughs> so I apologize. I don't mean to be like that. But I, I it, yeah, it really works for me. So take it at face value. Okay. What do you think about Twitter, by the way? I've heard of the Twitter thing. It's actually down right now, which is ironic because I wrote a whole. Oh, no wonder we're getting so much work done today. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, question. Exactly. I have to. I have to give the keynote to the Rails conference. What should I talk about? Oh, I really? think I may have asked you this before. Uh, gosh. The Ra- they have like a Ruby on Rails conference in Portland next. Well, if next it's the week. next 
the very well, next... it's the typical Joel thing. You got to tell yeah. them how much they suck, right? You want to open yeah. with that. You're like God, tell this place them is how out. idiots they are for choosing that particular technology, right? Because that's what people at a Rails conference really want to hear. That always amused me. Like you gave a keynote at a Java conference, and I think the title was "Java is the new COBOL." <laughs> what? Wait a minute! No, this is not me. That you wasn't totally you. Make this up. No, it, no, no, no. You're totally making this I, up. First of all, what Java conference? I, I, maybe I'm misremembering, but uh, yeah, I, I don't remember sworn. ever giving any kind of conference at any kind of Java conference. Okay. Any kind of Maybe Java. I just made that up. It was funny, but no, I wouldn't. <laughs> I wouldn't say that uh, Java is the next Cobol. Yes, uh, I, I, it's I the believe third that Cobol too. after VB Visual Basic six, which I was in, in which I was deeply involved. So, yeah, it could be viewed as a derogatory statement, but actually, I think it's a compliment because, I mean, really, would you rather be programming in Cobol or Java? Is that really even a question? <laughs> Yeah. Certainly, you'd rather be programming in Java than COBOL if you had an actual choice. So this is actually progress. I'm thinking, I'm thinking like, I'm not really sure yet <laughs> whether I'd rather just quit the whole industry and go back into the serial business. Really? So are you really that anti-Java? Because you know who I met? I met the uh, Gmail guy, Paul. Oh, gosh. I'm gonna, I, I know I always say this. I'm going to mispronounce his last name. But the, he's the guy who just coined the term... Do not be evil, or, or you know, don't be evil. And also, he was the original Gmail guy. He's the guy behind Friend Feed. Mm-hmm. Um, I, Paul is his name, and I can't remember his last name. But I, I met him, and, and we actually talked a little bit about the Java thing because he's very pro Java, and he was actually really disappointed that a lot of developers, it's very much a knee jerk reaction, but like, oh, Java, what a joke, you know. And that was kind of unfair to the people that do Java and kind of unfair to the language. And I, I, I can see where he's coming from. I mean, I, on the one hand, I will say stuff like, okay, Java is the new COBOL. I mean it actually as a compliment because I, I think COBOL is, is old and terrible. Yeah. Uh, but w- what do you think about that? I mean, do you think that it's fair to just dismiss it like that? Um, well, I mean, in what ways is Java COBOL? It's, uh, it's the, the de facto choice now for enterprise software development. Uh, it's the de facto choice for um, large teams of programmers that are not the real enthusiasts, but are just kind of career programmers. Which means that um, you know, not that there's anything wrong with that, but uh, it, it winds up being the choice of those grumpy people in the IT department that that are adding another line to some insurance-based application or something. So uh, you know, it, it's it's filling that particular role, of the, what they call the line of business applications, uh, and uh, and that's in that way, it's very much like COBOL. Right. It doesn't uh, require you to um, write in all capital letters, so in that way, it's different than, than COBOL. Um, wait, I want to I want to let's get to some of our questions here. I know we have a lot of questions because we got some questions this week. But there was yeah. something. Oh God, what were we talking about? Oh yeah, we were trying to. You you're not you're proceeding to not give me an answer as to what to talk about at the rails. Well, I, it's it, that's tough. It's so open-ended, right? I mean, I, 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 I'm sure whatever you come up with will, will be good and entertaining. I, my theory of, of presentations is they're really, and pe- some people really don't like this, but they're really more about entertainment first and information second. Ah, you think? Yeah. Well, a lot of people really disagree with that. A lot of, and I think it's the the left brain programmers that are like, yeah. no, 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 it has to be about the information first. And I'm like, no, 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 that's not how people work. <laughs> but yeah. Um, what was the question? Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, let's just take one of these questions. Okay. Oh, but we we do. We, we, I, I feel like there's something we're not, I'm not coming back to. Oh, number of listeners. You had mentioned that uh, that we're using a lot of bandwidth. Oh yeah, that's true. But I didn't get the the email was sort of like uh, there there was missing some information. So are we using too much bandwidth? Is that an issue? Well, I think once you start podcasting, you're in a different category of bandwidth automatically. Unless nobody listens to your podcast at all, right? And as much as you joke about it, people actually do listen to our podcasts. Significant numbers of people. Oh. Um, So we either move to Amazon S3, which I can do, which is 17 cents a gigabyte, I think, which would end up being like basically a hundred dollars a month for. Is that cheaper than what a content distribution network would charge? I don't know. See, because like a content distribution is hard to figure out. Um, so mm-hmm. if you have access, you you had mentioned something about IT conversations and whatever our options are, we should probably pursue them because we're going to okay. outgrow our current host 
Well, what I was thinking is I would ask Doug Kay, and I haven't asked him this, but maybe he'll say yes, that we could be one of the podcasts on IT Conversations since it's sort of very closely aligned to the kind of content that he's trying to generate there. And I don't know what that would mean, whether we have to – I'm not even sure how that's supported or what the business model is there, itconversations.com. But, you know, they have all kinds of shows. Yeah, no, I've been there before. It's yeah. a cool site. So yeah, maybe follow up with him and see Do-do. what he says. Uh, why does it say... Wait, eh, eh. Is Doug K. not involved in IT Conversations anymore? I don't know. Now I'm confused. Well, research it and come back to it. The Conversations Network. What's the connection between the Conversations Network and IT Conversations? I haven't been there in a while, so I'm not sure. Oh, I see. The Conversations Network is a superset of IT Conversations. Oh, yeah, look at this. They got 08 Conversations, Media Conversations, Social Innovation Conversations, Breakfast Serial Conversations. Okay, <laughs> we're all set here. Um, yeah, I, don't, I don't quite know how it works, but but it seems like uh, it might be a way to get bandwidth in exchange for something. I'm not really sure what we would have to do. Um, I should also email my provider and see if we can just buy a larger block of bandwidth. That might be nice as well. So I'll research right. that on my end. I'm going to make a note to do that. But let's let's get to the questions because I know we probably have a couple because we were – Okay. I, well, I what I did we were, is I ch- – oops. Go you ahead. still there? Yep. Something weird happened with my computer at that. All right. Let's just play a question here. And I got some good good hard ones. Hello, Jeff and Joel. My question is about the schedule for launching Stack Overflow. Huh. Uh, maybe I missed something and I don't fully understand what Stack Overflow is going to be, but – it just seems to me that it's basically like a database of like per, like uh, uh, th- things that you, things that you can uh, have problems with in programming that can be confusing yes. or something. Um, so why like uh, why why not just use something very simple and off the shelf for that, like a wiki or something? In which case you could launch very soon, like within a few days, and run it on a very you know like a cheap share hosting account or something. Et cetera, et cetera. Uh, that's from uh, Warren Henning. Good question, Jeff. All right, so, so my immediate answer is, well, let's consider something like the iPod. The iPod is really just a hard drive, an LCD, and like some sort of spinner wheel or buttons. So if you break anything down, yes, it, it's simple, right? I mean, just throw those things together and you have a product. But mm-hmm. for me, it's about the details, right? And writing it is part of one of those details, like having this very low-level element of control over everything that happens on the site is is such a better experience than just picking some off-the-shelf thing and just throwing it on the web. Plus, it's, an, it's a point of differentiation at that point. I mean, anybody can get a copy of MediaWiki and say, okay, look, it's my new programmer site, right? And it's some MediaWiki generic thing. Um, well, no, not everybody would get people to go there. We have some kind of audience that we could encourage to go there. It, that's true, but I, 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 do, I believe very strongly... Like, in, I don't really think... I mean, how much... Uh, seriously, of the, of the code that you can write in... Um, six to eight weeks, which is now five to seven weeks. How much, you know, how much real differentiation can you provide? I think actually quite a bit, because what we're talking about is, is basically a hybrid of sort of Reddit slash Dig plus, uh, you know, Wikipedia. Um, okay, but somebody else can look at that and they can do that same thing in five to seven weeks. Only it would be for them it would only be four to six weeks because they wouldn't have to do any design work. Well, again, let's just go back to the iPod, right? Anybody could have created the iPod. There, there's the magical synergy of you know iTunes, right, first of all, the details that they got right on the iPod. And I'm not saying we're going to be as awesome as the iPod. I'm not saying that at all. What I'm really saying is if, if you break down the materials used in the iPod, it seems like a very mundane, anybody could have done this kind of thing. But if you look at it in the bigger holistic picture, only Apple could really have done that because they took the time to say, we're going to get every detail of this little thing as right as we can. And that's the very much the attitude I have towards a lot of the things that I'm doing. And I'm not saying I have success at all of them by any means, but I really believe in getting all these little details right. And that's under the other purpose of the private beta is to get some of the edges off and make sure that we're actually doing something that works. The other fear I have is if we throw it out there and it kind of isn't that good – people will immediately write it off. So hopefully mm-hmm. that part will be private and we can actually improve it to the point that it's actually worthwhile before throwing it over the wall. Mm-hmm. So that, that's my feeling on that one. Okay, well, I'll take that as uh, a no. <laughs> what was the next? There's another slightly related question, which uh, I might as well um, play here since it's related. Hey, guys. This is Andrew Hay from Portland, Oregon. 
I heard Jeff mention that he rolled his own authentication system for the site. I understand he's using the ASP.NET MVC stack and trying to limit the dependencies, but I wonder about the cost of even spending a little bit of time reinventing something that's already in the box. If you're using ASP.NET, a brand new app, and you need things like accounts, roles, password resets, account auto-locking, password complexity enforcement, etc., seems like the cost of rolling your own is a little too high, not to mention the chance of getting it wrong. I think you could better apply the time on the real application instead of rewriting plumbing code. What do you think? Well, I'll answer that one. I totally agree with you, Andrew. That's a great point that you just made. <laughs> well, um, <laughs> it's like a lot of Microsoft stuff, okay? I mean, yeah. you're mm-hmm. getting a lot, and 80% of that you might not need. Okay, and I have. I don't know, that all sounded like good stuff. All that lockout, uh, password, uh, forgot my password, um, password complexity enforcement. Uh. My attitude, and I don't do this in all cases, right? I mean, we are using ASP.MVC. We're using also nlog, which a lot, we didn't. We're not going to write our own logging framework. But my mm-hmm. view is that logging in is not something I want to outsource. That's a fundamental part of the product. The other thing about um, Stack Overflow is that guests, in other words, people who haven't logged in, are going to have a first-class experience on our site. So being able to log in is not, you know, necessarily... Well, that doesn't, that doesn't conflict with the way that, that, that uh, ASP.NET authentication works. You can have logged on and logged off people. And, and it, actually, I mean, with, with uh, uh, ASP.NET authentication, um, you know, it just gives you this little object you can look at to find out whether or not the user is logged on, and if so, who are they? And that's all you need to know. And then your code can say, hmm, if they're logged on, then I do this. And if they're not logged on, then I do that. Well, it's pretty uh, – it's actually kind of slick. Right. I'm a big fan. Yeah. I, I'm, I am not a big fan. Having worked with it before, I found it right. very clunky, and it had a lot of things that I really didn't like the way they worked. What about somebody – somebody emailed us. This wasn't an uh, um, audio question, but what about OpenID? Can we support OpenID as an authentication method? I would like to support OpenID. Um, that's, that's on our sort of – research to-do list. Yeah, um, I the, definitely the, would like to. Right? <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Sorry. <laughs> the hypothetical to-do list. Yes. Uh, okay, I'm opening a bug in Fogbug. It's going to be the only bug in Fogbug that's going to say implement OpenID. <laughs> that's because like, oh, it's totally work free. Had to work on, so. no, I, I'm definitely a fan of OpenID. But just to come back around to, to the question that was originally asked about uh, you know, reinventing the wheel, I, I, I think actually re- some reinvention of the wheel is actually good. Um, mm. It's obviously open for debate, like everything else. Uh, but I think you, you pick your fights, and, and I'm not reinventing everything. But I feel very strongly that login is so important. I mean, in terms of getting people to actually come to your site and actually create an account, I want it to be as frictionless as possible. Which means I probably don't want off-the-shelf functionality the way Microsoft intended it for every IT shop in the world to work. Um, so I, I just have strong feelings about that particular one, which is why. Okay. Um, you know, in general, I, I, you know, my philosophy has been to use off-the-shelf stuff for everything except for the, your, your core differentiator, the way you're going to differentiate your app from other people's apps. I think you may be underestimating. I, I personally think that the ASP.NET uh, login functionality is pretty, pretty nice and pretty thoughtful in, in the sense that it really lets you do things just about any way you want. It doesn't impose any particular user interface or... Um, Anything like that, unless unless you want it. But uh, whatever, that's totally up to you. How you want to do that? Here's a question from Martin Wallace. Hey guys, this is Andrew Hay from Portland, Oregon. No, no, that's I not the that. one. Martin. Hi, Martin Wallace in the UK here. I've been following the Stack Overflow podcast and enjoying them thoroughly. It's fantastic to hear the thoughts that go into the development of a startup project, and I want to thank you both for letting us do that. Jeff has long been an advocate of open source software in his blog, and I applaud his recent decision to donate a not insignificant sum to a worthy project. My question is, will you be making the ultimate donation and open sourcing the code that Stack Overflow runs on? Thank you. So what he's talking about is when I originally started taking on advertising, because for a long time my blog was just something I did. It wasn't really a business initiative in any way. It was just an outlet for me professionally. So once it started to generate sort of significant amounts of money that really surprised me, um, I I, I was very conflicted. Um, And one way I wanted to deal with that confliction was to actually donate some of that back to the community. I felt like one thing that made my blog so successful wasn't just me, and I know you're down on the whole community thing, or comments thing. No, 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 comments, sorry. I meant to say comments. Like, you don't like comments following your, your, your 
naughty blog blog entries. Um, but I did, and I felt like the community was w- the comments that the community left were so important to my success, and I wanted to give back. The only so comments I, you I, get are these people second guessing every single decision you make as to which piece of code to use for your authentication <laughs> technology, <laughs> and 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 whether to uh, why not just use some open the, open the shelf package? And ugh, the community is just a bunch of second guessers. Who wants to hear from them? Yeah. But no, I I think it's very important to get that okay. kind of feedback. So you gave some money to Richard Stallman organization for new. No, no, no. I gave money to a specific .NET uh, project. My feeling was it was a five thousand dollar donation to a .NET open source project because wow. I feel open source is really underrepresented. On what the is the pro- what is the project? What was it? Uh, it's it's Screw Turn Wiki, which is like a really lightweight uh, .NET wiki. And does their, of- does their does their wiki support like voting and? No, I don't think so. I think it's a very much a traditional wiki. Okay. So, you know, like Wikipedia style wiki. Can you fork it? <laughs> <laughs> Never mind. I suppose you could. These questions all sort of come back on one another. So, what do you think? Stack Overflow, open source? Uh, I, I'm torn because, again, Stack Overflow is very much a commercial venture, which I guess you could say about Screwturn Wiki as well. Screwturn Wiki has also commercial. I mean, ultimately, he wants to get paid for the work that he's doing. Um, and, and I guess I just I don't know enough about the repercussions of it to make that decision. I'm not against it by any means. I mean, I'm very much pro, as the, the caller said, Martin said, I'm very much pro open source. Um, and, and I think I'm just a little nervous having taken on this project. Of, of well, what if somebody like, somebody cooler than us took our code and even took, you know, I think we already talked about creative commonsing some of the contributions. Yep. So they took the code that we developed at great expense, I would like to point out, at least six to eight weeks, if not five to seven. Uh, and then took all our code and stuff like that and made another site somewhere that was like, the, you know, the, the better than Stack Overflow. It could be called Stack Double Overflow. It would all be written in English as a second language. And uh, it would be extremely popular, let's say, in Eastern Europe, for example. Right. So that's, that's forking, right? I had, yeah. I had a blog entry about that as well. So the, the risk with forking is that, yeah. first of all, you have to have the audience. I mean, you have to have enough. Well, but they're going to suck away some, some of the audience who might have come to us, thus reducing the network effects and thus reducing the value to the entire community. But how would they actually do that? They're just a crappy copy of what we did, and right. they don't have our audience. They don't have the number of people participating. They would probably never get critical mass. I mean, forking is very much like an evolutionary process, and, and just like an evolution, most parts of that tree die off, right? Very so why do they want our friggin' code in the first place if it's... Well, the reason to, you know, to open source and expose the code is you might actually get some really cool patches contributed by people who people who feel strongly about a particular yeah. feature that we don't have that's, time to implement. That's actually kind of interesting. Didn't, didn't, didn't Slashdot... Uh, Slashdot was open source, and people didn't people keep, keep contributing patches and they just ignored them and they're like, yeah, whatever, it works, leave me alone. Well, right. It's a dictatorship, and it, the tone of an, any open source project is is set by the people who run it, mm-hmm. and they're very much set the terms of the debate. Just because it's open source, doesn't mean that, in an evolutionary sense, anything will actually happen with that fork you've created. It's very difficult to get those off the ground. Yeah. More difficult than you would think. I mean, because you would think, oh, there's going to be hundreds of vaguely, slightly incompatible versions of your thing, and you know everybody's going to be really confused, and you know the whole world will explode. But in practice, that's not actually what happens. People. Rally I don't think the world actually has any need for more than one or at most two stack overflows. Well, now you're getting back into a question you asked or you answered podcast <laughs> one or two, right? It's like how many copies of Experts Exchange do we really need? How many computers does the world need? Uh, yeah, just one, and it's going to be called Google. Uh oh, I'm just kidding. Oh, uh, you're talking about the Google mega computer hive taking over the world and being Skynet achieving. Pretty much. Right? When do, when do you I mean, think we'll Google have, we'll achieves have, awareness? <laughs> we'll just have dumb terminals, and we'll just look into Google. We'll use Google Apps and do Google searches, and everything will be hosted by Google. It's like the Walmart of the Internet, right? Mm-hmm. I'm kidding. I like Google. I'm not. I'm, I'm totally joking. I don't think that's going to happen. You have to be careful. That would be scary, though. Because as soon as they uh, – yeah, if they don't like you, if oh, the – yeah. Speaking of which, we should talk about, and there might have been an audio question for this, but Google introduced their own documentation wiki. Right? Oh, yeah. Was there a question about that? No. There was a question about that, but I didn't... Uh, Since we're on the topic, I mean, I don't yeah. think... It, Doc, what's it called? Doctype? Doctype. Google, Google Doctype. Doctype. 
Thank you. Um, but that's not really a Q&A site, isn't it? Isn't that no, just like a sort not. of a documentation wiki yes, about it's a doc- HTML? It's a documentation wiki. I do not think it overlaps at all with what we're doing, so we can really quickly answer that question. In- indeed, Google did have Google questions or Google answers or whatever it was called. And they canceled it. And they shut it down, which is, yeah, really weird. And the guy, a lot of things got shut down at Google. The guy behind Google Blogoscoped, Philip Lenson, uh-huh. um, great, great blogger, was actually a huge Google Answers. He participated heavily in that, and I think he was mm-hmm. really disappointed. And he's a smart guy, so I, I don't know. It's weird. You kind of wonder why they canceled that. That seemed to really work. I still actually get hits on Google Answers sometimes when I'm searching for stuff. That was kind of – I mean, the, the, the trouble with any big company is that they just can't pay attention to some of these littler, littler things that aren't really going anywhere. Mm-hmm. And uh, something that might be a fabulous business for a small company just does not deserve even one millionth of a second of, of Larry, Sergey, and Eric's collective brain cycles. So, so these things in, in large companies tend to languish. That's really the same problem at Microsoft. So many little little businesses inside Microsoft that – would be fabulous standalone companies, humongous standalone companies that would be great to invest in and would probably do a lot better than they would outside of Microsoft if they just had some kind of somebody paying attention to them. Why don't more large companies spin off little divisions of themselves? Why isn't that a more common pattern? Because I totally agree with you. And I think Microsoft... Go ahead. They're megalomaniacs. They just want to be, be the biggest possible company they can possibly be with everything and control everything and be everything to everybody. Nobody ever wants to spin off little companies. They want to take over big companies. Um, You know, General Electric uh, for years used to have this idea of either being number one. In in every business they were in, they wanted to either be number one uh, or number two or sell the business or close it down. That was sort of their list of choices. I see. And I think, you know, if you took something like that and went to Microsoft – if you bought Microsoft, took over there, kick out Monkey Boy and uh and uh and and applied that particular set of rules like all right windows number 1 fine office number 1 keep that around msn number 2 you guys got 2 years to become number 1 or you're getting spun off or kicked out or sold to the public um that, that, that it's, to me, that sort of makes sense. And, and then what you do is you take all this extra money that Microsoft has, and you use it either to pay a big old dividend to the shareholders to compensate them for the years and years that they held this damn stock, or uh, just start your own venture capital fund that just invents, invests in a bunch of little businesses that are going to be standalone businesses that are going to go into all these different little areas that Microsoft wants to go into. Right. I mean, because that was always one of my key um, recommendations. I mean, you – and I both have been longtime Microsoft sort of watchers. And I think yeah. it's one of the things you, you arrive at almost all the time is they really should be spinning off little subdivisions to do a better job at these individual things because they have more autonomy, they'd have more you know focus, mm-hmm. more conviction, and it just never happens. And I was just uh, interesting to hear why you think that never happens. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's just I, I have no idea. It's just like this desire to, to be in charge of a gigantic big company. I guess. I mean, there there must be a belief that there are synergies somehow. Synergy. Synergy. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. That, that's that word has sort of been bandied cool. about. But synergy, you know, there's all there are also negative synergies. In the case of Microsoft, they call it strategy tax, yes. where like the Internet Explorer team is not allowed to fix the, the the DHTML editor because it might compete with Word, so they're forced to make to make that continue to be bad. Oh, right, right, to reduce internal competition. But I think there should be maximum internal competition. Yeah, Yeah. and the the only way to really cause that to happen, um, well, you wouldn't if you were protecting a legacy business. You wouldn't think there should be maximum internal competition. If you're trying to protect a monopoly at all costs and extract absolute maximum number of dollars out of it as possible, uh, you might actually believe, you know, okay, maybe somebody else will come up with competition, but so far they haven't, so why should we... Hurry that process along. Anyway, um, some other examples of strategy tax. Uh, classic example is that when they bought OneNote, which was actually considered one of the nicer things that came out of um, Windows, the tablet edition of Windows. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was an outside company that they purchased, and they purchased the product. And from all accounts, that whole team then spent an entire year reworking the user interface to be 100% Office compatible so that the toolbars look the same and the menus work the same and there are all these sort of integration points and really just kind of mucking around with an already working application to make it look more like a part of the Office family. 
And you can sort of see the value there. On the other hand, an external company would never have done that. So there was all that cost. There was all that time that was spent on that. And that's the so-called corporate strategy tax that you pay at Microsoft. And it's a, it's a negative synergy. It's a reason why a business is going to be less successful inside of Microsoft than outside. Right. Um, you know, some other examples. There are things that are so far down on the list. You know, there's that when you go to the Microsoft Office website, there's that list of all the programs that are part of Office, and there's 27 different SKUs you could buy, and each of them have a different set of programs. And it starts out with things that you've heard of, like Word and Excel and PowerPoint. And then as you get down the list, you're getting into these, like, Info, Pass, Note, Gami, Groove, things, expressions. Right. I don't I don't know what those are, but they're these, like, little tiny little apps, all of which is just it's just being crushed by their membership in the Microsoft empire. Whatever happened to front page? They, they, they renamed it and relaunched I, it. But what the heck I is think, the new? I think right now, yeah. the expression web is replacing it. Like expression is their right. new Adobe style stuff. They have a but, vector designer. They have a paint program that they bought. They from. do. Gosh, I can't remember the name. Yeah. Expression, expression. The expression series. Does anybody use that? It's, I think it's getting pretty much mauled in the market because Adobe is just so strong and powerful. But they're actually yeah. not bad little apps. I mean, they actually bought them. I can't remember the name of the company they bought them from. But they're pretty so, clever. They, they have a neat UI. Oh, yeah. Look at this. Expression Web. New era. New, beautiful inside and out. Passionate about standards. you got Expression Studio, Expression Blend, Expression Design, Expression Media, Expression Encoder. Wow. I am so behind. I have never heard of any of these things. Well, if you did anything with uh, Silverlight or WPF, you would... Those are the design tools that you used to lay out, like vector-based layout and some other and the, the 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 XML language that they used to lay out. I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head. Don't you think these things would have a better chance if they were their own company and there was somebody trying to get press for these things all the time instead of oh, just totally. being the fortunate thing that you have to remember about all the businesses Microsoft is in? Well, I totally agree, and that's that's why I came back to the question. It's one of the I think the most obvious things you come up with looking at Microsoft or really any large company is they really need to spin off, and if not spin off, then give these these little divisions huge levels of autonomy. And yeah, one more like Microsoft, Xbox style. Yeah, autonomy. Xbox. That's the classic yeah. example people point to is the Xbox does whatever they want, and that's made them really successful, or at least moderately successful. So why not? Or something we don't know because they don't break it out. All right, uh, here's a question that's... Hi, Jeff and Joel. This is Dan from Birmingham, England. I wanted to ask, what do you guys think will or should be in the next version of Windows, and will it really be worth spending a couple of hundred dollars to upgrade? Next version of Windows. Should we get that? Should we upgrade? What's going to be in it? Well, since you think that Apple has been so successful, one thing I don't understand is I think Apple gets a free pass on a lot of stuff. Like, is there really that many great features in in OS X 10.5 versus 10.4? Is that worth $100? Yeah, that's Spaces feature. Because I use it. And I would like something like that. So it has to be a feature that you use. Well, for me, yes. Uh, For other people, it might be something different. But you know what? There, There are so many, like... Spaces is an example of these kinds of um, low-hanging fruit, things that, could, that are really kind of easy. And uh, I think one of the problems that they got into with uh, uh, Vista and uh, the original Longhorn Vision is that they tried to do like several really, really hard things at the same time, like a whole new API. There was the WPF. Then there were all those uh, – the new file system thing that never happened, uh, the object-oriented file system, which is the same Cairo idiocy that they've been failing to ship since 1980. Eight or something, and uh, um, and there were just all these sort of big grandiose changes, um, all of which were kind of architectural and not really end user features. And one of the things that I think Leopard shows, where they just have a good backup program, they got this little spaces thing, uh, is just by giving people like a few simple little easy to use and yet useful things. You don't need to make big grand architectural statements or changes. Uh, to give people a reason to upgrade. And well, has, the, well, think about Unix. Has Unix really changed that much as an nobody operating system? That's not, that's not relevant. Nobody uses Unix. But uh, the underlying operating system is Unix. You're saying reinvent some key part of it like the file system. Unix would never even try that. I mean, have they really ever even done that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's new file systems on Unix all the time. There's ZFS and EFS and yeah. Sure. But there's just new plugins. They're not some grand new vision of how files will be stored. Uh, I don't know. The ZFS is kind of a grand new vision of how files will be stored. Okay. Well, I was just trying to contrast that with the whole Cairo vision, which I oh. agree is crazy. Well, no, I mean, Cairo is just a bunch of weird object 
object-oriented architecture astronauts from from decades that are just unable, constitutionally unable to actually create anything that ships because they that's just who they are. But <laughs> I don't, don't want to go too far into that. But they just sort of uh, that that it was it, you know it's a it's 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 a grand vision that's not that far off from the BOS vision of how the operating system works, and and it, it's all it's kind of small talky in the idea of everything is an object and, and all you're doing is and it's it all kind of makes sense to an architecture astronaut but they're never actually able to implement it in a way that makes sense to anybody and yet and what what has actually sold upgrades of OS 10 has been little clever features that you can actually kind of use and that you actually might might want so window and and I don't I don't know what these would be for windows but I would sure love something like spaces uh some way to have multiple desktops or even just a way where I can say you know these seven windows are my development windows, and I want to keep those all together and like minimize and maximize them as a group, so I don't have to keep you know relaunching the four different apps that I use for software development when I want to go do some other pro- kind of project that uses maybe a bunch of Excel spreadsheets and a Word document. So, so let me let me drill down to something you're saying there because I think you're right, and um, Vista actually has a lot of new features. People say, oh, Vista doesn't have anything new, but if you go to there's a Wikipedia page, I'll link it in the the summary. There's tons and tons of new features, but the problem is, and let me give you an example. They're features that nobody really uses. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> let me give you a classic example. Yeah. Vo- voice recognition in Vista is yeah. absolutely amazing. It's really impressive. Like if you go through the tutorial uh-huh. and start playing with it, you can yeah. do you can resize windows, you can like identify things by number on the screen. It's incredible. It's really really cool, but nobody uses it. Right. Who actually sets out and says, "Hey, I want to use voice navigation on my computer?" I mean, it's really, really rare, and it got this first-class treatment in Vista all out of proportion to the number of people that are actually going to use it. Uh-huh. Uh, so I think that's a key part of what you're saying is they're building a lot of new features that are kind of cool and, and maybe even really good, but not meeting sort of the core constituency yeah. you know, the things that they want. And I don't want to throw too much, too many stones at glass houses because I'm not really sure if I can think of anything that, that other than, like I say, spaces that, that I, I can, I'm not really sure I can think of anything that I feel is genuinely missing from my daily uh, programming experience or, or just sort of desktop or Windows or, you know, I, whatever it is, it's an app launcher. Um, there, th- there may be some, uh, yeah, there may be some things I could uh, come up with a little bit of. But with OS X, it's also cheaper. I mean, if you look at Vista Ultimate, I think they reduced the price. It was like three or four hundred dollars. But I think if you had an upgrade that was like a hundred dollars, people would be a lot less demanding in terms of oh, it's got to be this radical reinvention of my operating system. You know, XP is good enough, and XP was yeah. a great release, right? I mean, it really, really was. It's a testament to the strength of the release that it's still actually pretty popular at this point. But I think what um, I'm saying is like, give me something that I can use every day. Like, give me like even an iPhoto clone or a music thing i guess they have that right they're just not as good they're not nearly as good the little apps that ship with uh os 10 are just like some of those things like GarageBand, and you can actually get stuff done with them right Uh, yeah it's been a disappointment let me bring up my classic example is uh like notepad and paint uh i think it's an embarrassment that notepad is in the state that it's in and also paint i mean yeah you've ever used paint.net paint.net exactly just ship that thing i know yeah, it's crazy. I don't. I'll never understand the rationale behind that. We have been. We've been talking for almost an hour now. Do you want to keep going? No, we should stop. Um, <laughs> we stop. One thing. <laughs> okay, <laughs> just checking. All uh, the uh, yeah podcasts that I listen uh, to have a tendency to just sort of spill over to about an hour and a half usually. They no, all, let's yeah, let's let's over. stop at an hour. I do want to have a shout out. Um, I know there's a, particularly from my point of view, there's not a lot of computer science rigor around the things that I'm saying. I, that's been pointed out to me in the past. <laughs> but I do want to give a shout out to uh, uh, somebody emailed me behind se-radio.net, which is Software Engineering Radio, oh. the podcast for professional developers. It's actually very cool. That, their latest uh, entry on their site is Anders, the uh, architect behind C Sharp, the chief language strategist, who is truly a genius, right? I mean, I don't think I would debate that with anybody that he is really really smart yeah um so if you're looking for real hardcore software engineering this is not that <laughs> but i would point you towards se-radio.net um i've okay. heard very good things se-radio.net and um also if you are uh listening you have more questions um we did accumulate a few questions last week but if you have anything else you want to talk about some of the ones that were submitted this week 
I won't have time to get to until next week, but hopefully we will get to all of them. But um, once again, somebody told me I said the email address wrong, so pay attention now. Make sure I get this right. Podcast at stackoverflow.com. Yes. It's not the other way around. It's not com at stackoverflow.podcast or... It's not. It's not um, screen. It's last part. It's not an AOL keyword. It's an actual email address. <laughs> Go to AOL keyword podcast at stackoverflow.com. The at for those of you that may not be familiar is uh, Shift Two on American keyboards. It looks like a little lowercase a with a circle around it. Yes, and that's um, used in uh, um, making bagels and in sending email addresses yeah. to people. Yeah. Thanks for the questions this week. And see you next week.